One is that I had a, a speech impediment. And so I would stutter just horribly. I couldn't, the more nervous I would become, the, the less I could get out the end of my sentence. By the end of my senior year, I had the number one show on the number one station in three major markets. At the beginning of the year, I couldn't even talk. I had plenty of friends. I had popularity. I had enough money. You know, I was, what, 19, 20, 21. I had enough money for the, the, all that. And, and there was still this emptiness on the inside of me. That's when I started having this, I think I'm going to sneak to the liquor store on a Monday and get something for tonight. And then I can't wait to get off work so that way tonight I can get home and have a drink to eventually, I'm going to carry a small flask with me to work to have a drink. But by that time, the screws were so loose on this area of my life concerning alcohol that uh, it, it, it wouldn't take hardly anything to start really getting me off course. Have you ever looked around your life and thought, I have everything that I have ever wanted, but I still feel empty inside. I have plenty of money, I have friends, and I have popularity, but I still feel like there should be something more. Is there something more? What will bring true fulfillment to my life? Maybe you feel you have found fulfillment and everything is going well. Everything except for this little secret that you've been keeping. This secret is a ticking time bomb. You've kept it secret thus far, but it's only a matter of time before someone sees right through you. Is it even really a secret or do others know about this thing in your life? Is there a way out of this bad habit? Can God bring true fulfillment to your life? Is there something more than health, wealth, and prosperity? These are the questions that I want to explore with our guest today as he shares his life change story with us. I've actually never met our guest in person, and he is zooming in all the way from Ventura, California. So, hey, new friend, why don't you introduce yourself and let the listeners know who you are? Hey, everybody. My name is Elijah Tyndall, and um, I'm all the way from California, Ventura, California, just north of L.A., and I'm a comedian and a comedian slash speaker. And so I talk for a living. Well, welcome, Elijah. So glad that you're here, and I'm excited to hear your story. So we have listeners that are all over the world, and I've had, I've got some listeners from Russia, from Algeria, from uh, Australia, from all over. And so it's really uh, interesting to me to, to just to hear where people are from. So why don't you tell us a little bit about where you were born and where you were raised as a child? I was born in Dallas, Texas. Now, I've never actually lived in Dallas, Texas. I was born there, and then immediately my parents shifted to Little Rock, Arkansas. Well, Elijah, I knew we had a connection because I'm in northwest Arkansas, and you were uh, there in Little Rock. So uh, anyway, I knew we had a connection somewhere, yep. so that's awesome. <laughs> so why don't you tell me a little bit, did you have any siblings, or were you the only child? Sure. Yeah, I had a sibling and I still do. My sister, my elderly sister is a year and a half older than me. <laughs> and she always passed herself off as younger than me. And um, and so we always joke about it. But yeah, but I've, I've got one sister and, and that was it. How were things with your mom and dad? Did they stay together the entire time as you grew up or was there a split or tell me about that relationship? Absolutely. Actually, I'm doing this uh, this podcast episode right now from their dining room. 
right now because we're kind of in transition while everyone's moving around. And so, so yeah, they're still, they literally celebrated their 55th wedding anniversary um, two days ago. So yeah, they, they were always a good example to me of, of just, um, you know, I mean, I, I don't think I ever, uh, I don't think I ever experienced a concern about my parents not going to be together. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't, it wasn't a big surprise. It wasn't a big, you know, there was, there was nothing, no reveal that was about to happen. Um, and my dad, you know, if I could just, if I could grow up, even though I'm 51, if I could grow up to be half the, the person character that he is, I would be, you know, just, I'd be ecstatic. Wow. Well, it sounds like you had a really good relationship with your parents. I know I had a, a really good one with my parents as well, but I talked to a lot of people on this podcast that just did not have a good relationship. So let me ask you this question, Elijah. Was God in your family at all? Do you remember any God moments growing up? Uh, what was it like? Did you guys go to church? Did you not? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question because, okay, so when I was when I was small, I would say about six years old, um, my my little Nana, my little Mexican Nana, she would drag me and my sister to these old school revivals that were in the white tents, you know, back in the early 80s and the white tents with the evangelists coming through. And it was so hot under that tent. It was, you know, this was in Arkansas. This is in Little Rock, Arkansas. And so it was 112 degrees outside, big missionary mosquitoes flying around, you know, and th there's a literal air conditioned church building 20 feet from us. And she would drag me to those revivals. That was my exposure to a church culture, to the Christianity, to the belief system. But it wasn't until I was 11 and a half that my dad actually committed his life to Christ. He ended up becoming an associate pastor at a really strict Pentecostal church at the time. And that's when I was actually exposed to Christianity. And, um, and, and then my dad ended up starting his own church over time. So what did Elijah— think about himself. Uh, we talk a lot about identity and who we think we are. And, you know, did you, were you a confident young boy? Did you believe uh, that you were, you know, that you, did you have confidence in the things that you did or were you insecure? I mean, tell me a little bit about what was going on in your mind. Yeah, I would say I started out at a very insecure. And what I mean by that is there was a couple of reasons. One is that I had a, a speech impediment. And so I would stutter just Horribly. I couldn't, the more nervous I would become, the the less I could get out the end of my sentence. I would just lock up. But where where we were in Arkansas at the time, believe it or not, was not the like uh it was not the melting pot of cultural diversity there. And so I was really um, you know, I was timid. I was afraid of being bullied and picked on just because I was I was browner than everybody else and for no so so people didn't really know what I was they probably weren't even thinking of it but you know how our minds play tricks on us and I was thinking everyone is worried about this and I was actually the only one the other thing was my name my name uh you know I, I go by Elijah my actual name is Elias and I didn't know that until I started school and when they when they called roll they said Elias and I was like who's this Elias kid and I went home and they're like I said they called me something weird at school and my nana my mom were like, was it Elias? Because that's your name, stupid. Like that's, that's <laughs> I got in trouble for that. But but it was different than I wanted to be. I wanted to be Scott. I wanted to be Todd. I wanted to be John. I wanted to be something that just right in the middle. And so there are several factors that caused me to like just really 
wor- I was just worried. I was, you know, I looked like Schmeagel from Lord of the Rings. Like I was just a gangly little creature. And, um, and, and I was a type one diabetic, which means I would have these medical issues that really, you know, diabetes is such a common thing now in common knowledge. But back then it was not so common for the, especially with a type one diabetic. Um, because there's there's some variations, there's some differences in the way you treat that. And so if, I, if my blood sugar is running low from too much insulin, I would have reactions and it would scare everybody. And I, so I, I didn't even want to speak up in class because it, they would have to do a special thing where they would pull out an apple juice for me and all, you know, and, and I, I just, I wanted to be invisible. I did not want to stand out. I didn't want to get nervous. And for all of those reasons, um, you know, and the enemy uses all of these things to cause us to feel insecure about ourselves. And so I just felt insecure. And it wasn't until I was about 13 that I kind of started stepping out. So tell me, your dad was a pastor already at that point, correct? So did that, I mean, you know, being a pastor's kid, sometimes the pastor's kids feel like they want to rebel against the way their, you know, the way their dad or their mom is headed it spiritually. Was that your case or did you just... um, embrace, uh, you know, your dad's ministry and stuff. So, so I was looking and I I wouldn't have said it then, but I can see it now. I was looking for a way to go and do whatever it is that I wanted to do without having rules and regulations or any kind of standards. And, um, and so that actually drove me away from, I ran from God till I was 21. So what did that look like in high school for you? I mean, did that look like going to parties? Did that look like, uh, you know, dating a lot? I mean, what 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 did that look like in your life? You know, I, I would do some partying. My first drink was, you know, at about 12 years old. We, we, uh, we paid a guy that we knew to find a get us a six pack and he dumped it off in this dirt and it rubbed dirt all over the beers, you know, and that kind of thing, which was very symbolic of what alcohol would end up being in my life. It's something I would have to go through dirty things to, 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 to get a hold of and go through, you know, and, and secretly and all that, all the nonsense that it became in my life. Um, it was very symbolic. I didn't know at the time. At the time I was just Schmeagel trying to wipe off a dirty beer. So let me ask you this question. So you, you're you going through high school and you're kind of doing the uh, a normal high school thing, rebelling a little bit, doing your own thing. Where did that lead you uh, after you were out of high school? I'm assuming, did you graduate high school? And if you did, did you go into the workforce or did you go to college? So the, the school counselor called me in on my senior year, beginning of the senior year, and he said, you're not going to be able to graduate if you don't make up these three credits. And the only way you can do it is there's a Votech course uh, off campus for half a day. And so I chose on that list of a, whole, a big list of things, I chose radio broadcasting. Now, remember, I have a speech impediment. And, and so I still like, even though it's cleared up a little bit, I still get nervous. I thought radio broadcasting meant we were going to p- push buttons and play music all day. So when I got in there and I realized, oh, no, this is their training people how to be disc jockeys on the radio. And and for those young people listening right now, there used to be a thing called radio yeah, <laughs> where we would actually listen to it. And 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 so I, I realized that. But Mr. Bob, who was the um, teacher in that, 
Um, he was connected to all the radio stations around, you know, because he ran this radio broadcasting program. So when radio stations would need somebody for just little filler roles, they would contact him and say, hey, we got a part time position for someone to go get coffee for people, that kind of. And so he calls me into his office about two weeks into class. And I'm doing the, the typical cutting up and trying to trying to distract from me being so insecure. Um, and he calls me in and he goes, uh, hey, Rock Jock, that's what he called me. He goes, uh, I think you've got what it takes to be in radio. Um, anyway, by the end or by the middle of that year, uh, there was a radio position that opened up for a part time gopher. At, but it was the number one station in central Arkansas, which also at that time included the Memphis market and Dallas market. So this was a big station. Um, and and so so I got the job and about two weeks into that, the program director said, hey, you uh, you go to that broadcasting school. Uh, can you come run the board, which means just push the buttons tonight, the overnight guy called in. And so this happened three nights in a row. And I was like, can I talk? And he's like, no, you can't talk. Just and so finally, the third night, I, I he let me talk one time and I was so ecstatic. You know, I was like, oh, here we go. And so I picked the song with the legs at 3.48 a.m. And I was, you know, I opened that mic up. And then I, I FM 104, KKYK, your number one hit musician. I was so excited. And and it was just like at that moment, I was like, oh, this, this is what you're meant to do. From that time to this time, I was an insecure stutterer that would not want to stand out talking. But all of a sudden, these this little glimpse of like, you, you may not have the whole picture, but here's part of the picture and here's how it's good. So I believe our life is like that. We've got these puzzle pieces that start to present themselves and they fit with this other piece and this other piece. And then over time, it creates this bigger image of who it is God wants us to project to be his part of the image. And so, so that's what happened out of high school. And then I went into radio directly. I ended up getting a, a, my own radio show uh, on that station within three, by the end of my senior year, I had the number one show on the number one station in three major markets. At the beginning of the year, I couldn't even talk. Wow. That's, that's yeah. amazing. That must have been quite the ego thing too, to be on the, uh, the air at senior in high school. So Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it, was worst, it was the worst thing in the world for me <laughs> because, because now they're sending me to these clubs. I'm too young to be in the club, but I'm doing these Friday night live remotes. I'm doing it. And so people are just bringing me whatever I want. You know, and this was back in the late eighties. Uh, I graduated in nineties, so late eighties, early nineties uh, and nineties. And, um, you know, drugs were just ram running rampant. Fentanyl wasn't on the scene yet. All this, you know. And so, so I just had access to whatever I wanted. I moved out when I was 17. I got my own house, you know, or I was renting a, a house. And um, I mean, I was just, I was partying it up. Until I was 21. So what happened whenever you were 21? Where did that, did you stay at that radio station or did you, did you move on to something else? What, what happened to you? The radio station switched formats to a talk radio, which I love now, but back then I wanted to be, you know, the, the lightning and thunder of the station. And so I quit the radio station. I still did production. I still did uh, commercials and stuff, but, um, but what happened in my life, the shift toward, uh, not wanting to live that way anymore is that it wasn't one of these um, traditional rock bottom moments. What it was, was a, uh, I've got everything I wanted. I had plenty of friends. I had popularity. I had enough money. You know, I was what, 19, 20, 21. I had enough money for the, the all that. And, and there was still this emptiness on the inside of me. 
because I had been exposed to God in his presence at a young age, I knew there was a difference between what I was feeling on the inside at this age when I thought I got everything I wanted versus what I knew to be true. And my little Mexican nana was always in the back of my head because I would go home and visit. And she would always scream when I was, I was leaving. She always said, son of the most high God, child of the king. She'd always say that. And my friends were like, hey, man, you're not a star. I was like, just keep walking, dude. Just keep walking. I, I didn't want any part of it. But but when I was about to turn 21, I um, I just had this conversation with my best friend at the time. And I'd already, God already had been, you know, dealing with my heart. And I'd already been feeling these feelings. And so I told him. I said, listen, man, tomorrow, I said, I want you to get everyone out of the house, uh, you know, and, and tomorrow I'm going to church and I'm just making things right. And I said, you don't have to go with me. You don't have to, you know, and, and, uh, and I figured, I figured I would never see him again. And I remember it was about my dad's little church in Bauxite, Arkansas. My dad ran kind of a church for homeless uh, people, but it was, it was in Little Rock later on, but it started in Bauxite, Arkansas. And so there, there we were, and I walk in Easter Sunday. I walked in kind of late, and the songs were going on. You know, praise and worship was happening, and I didn't wait for an altar call. I didn't. So it wasn't. It wasn't what someone said in a message. It wasn't the song that was playing. It was. A, it was me knowing that I have to make things different. Without change, nothing changes. You know, and so I, 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 I didn't wait. I didn't do the traditional waiting till the end. I couldn't wait. I was like, I got to get this thing. And I just walked straight to the, straight to the front. Straight to, and so you got to think my Nana's in there, my dad's in there, my family. And, you know, in a small church, everyone already knows your story. Everyone knows they're praying for you. Everyone knows your shenanigans that you're up to, you know? And so I just walked straight to the front and I was just crying, you know, just that ugly cry. And, and out of the corner of my eye, I see someone, I don't know who it is yet, but I see someone standing beside me. Turns out it was my best friend that I was talking to the night before. He came to church that morning. He walked up with me. He ended up becoming a children's pastor and a youth pastor later on down the road. And um, and so that's that was the shifting point. It wasn't a everything's gone wrong. It's everything went right and something's still wrong. Yeah. So maybe you felt the emptiness. You know, you were you were there and you had everything that you thought that you would make you successful or make you, you know, uh, mean something to yourself or from the world standpoint, but you were still empty. Did that lead you into some kind of ministry at that point or where did you go? So after that happened, did you just uh, continue that path or what? Tell me about that. And um, they were going to go to summer camp that first year and they needed someone to drive the van and they said, hey, you know, Hey, anyone will do it. And I was like, I'll drive that van. And so I drove the van full of students and that's where I was exposed to this different level of ministry on a, you know, on, I wouldn't say on a greater level, but on a, on a scale that, that um, as far as the things being done. So I was exposed to the atmosphere of like, Oh, this is, you know, there's a, a thousand teenagers in there worshiping God. I'd never seen anything like this. You know, and so that it was just like this, 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 uh, it exposed me to more of the style of things that God would lead me to later on. I actually ended up over the next few years 
actually going to that church, moving to Oklahoma, going to that church. And that's where I ended up being a, becoming a youth pastor for 10 years and then actually running that camp. Wow. So you actually ran the camp or that was kind of your, your job was to do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So I did that for a, for a number of years and, and, uh, and until God uh, shifted me into um, what, you know, into comedy and uh and the entertainment so tell me about that so that's a that's an interesting jump from you know leading a camp and then going into uh being a comedian or into the entertainment business how what led you into that and was god behind that or what i mean uh you know what led you that direction and and let me clarify the the camp i i ran the camp for two years and then the rest of the time i was a youth pastor at the church and so after that the majority of time i was a youth pastor yeah well i think i think it has to back up to when i was working there at the ministry um because in there was an important shift that happened in my life so i mentioned earlier that i i had issues and struggles with alcohol okay and so so but but from from the time I was a teenager, when I when I at 21, when I got saved, I, I never even considered it really having a drink or using any substance or anything like that. Um, I, it just wasn't it wasn't something that I was interested in. While I was working in the ministry, um, we would have these guests come in from all over the different all over the world and stuff. And and um, and about when I was uh, I would say 31, 32 years old, uh, working at the church. Um, we, we had a team, a, a praise and worship team come in and on their request list was some wine. And so I was like, wine, you know, and so and, and, and once again, I'm not here to say whether or not it's good or bad or indifferent for you. I, I just know for me, alcohol was certainly a thing I needed to stay away from. History of addiction in my family with my Nana and things like that. And so. So uh, when I when I saw that, I was like, huh. And so what I did was I was like, well, if it's okay for these guys, once again, looking for excuses, uh, when it's, if it's okay for these guys to do it, well, why wouldn't it be okay for me to do? And so then I started casually socially drinking while I was actually working in ministry. And it, it wasn't necessarily frowned upon because some of the biggest names uh, out there were doing it as they were coming in and openly, openly doing it, you know, in our, in our green rooms and stuff at the church. And yeah. Yeah. So was this while you were working at the camp then? So you were, yes. you were a camp director or you were leading this mm-hmm. camp. And so this all, you can kind of nail this down to whenever you had, you had some guests or had people there and they were ordering wine. Is that, yes. is that accurate? Okay. And so, so I'm curious because you mentioned to me earlier that you did some partying in high school and some of that kind of stuff. So did you not recognize that alcohol was an issue then, or was it not an issue then? And then, I mean, what happened there? I would say there was no cravings, if that makes sense. There was no cravings that came along with it uh, for for continued use. It was just I'm going to party because we have a, 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 we have. We have the stuff here, but there was nothing in me that was drawing me toward that uh, any more than it was drawing me toward anything else that I wasn't struggling with necessarily. But that was introduced when it was reintroduced into my life in my 30s. That's when I started having this. I think I'm going to sneak to the liquor store on a Monday and get something for tonight. And then I can't wait to get off work so that way tonight I can get home and have a drink to eventually, I'm going to carry a small flask with me to work 
to have a drink. And and eventually it did become this, wait a minute, things are becoming unmanageable. Things are becoming, they're getting off course, they're getting off track. Money is disappearing where it doesn't need to disappear. All these signs that of addiction, these are normal things that come along with addiction. All of these were presenting themselves along the way. But I, once again, was looking for the excuse of like, well, if it's okay for others to do it, then it must be okay for me. Not paying attention to, hey, man, it's not okay for you. And so so when I made the shift into years later, into comedy in 2006, uh, 2006 when I made the shift from ministry into into uh, the entertainment industry, God had been putting that on my heart for, for several, several years. Um, because the way that I, I minister and the way that I would preach messages was always story-based and comedic-based. So there's always this, this comedic approach, and I would use storytelling to do it. And um, But by that time, the screws were so loose on this area of my life concerning alcohol that uh, it, it, it wouldn't take hardly anything to start really getting me off course. And, and so that's, that was in that shift. God did lead me to, to, to leave that part of the ministry. Now, I don't believe I've ever left ministry because I still work with churches. At the time, I still have, were working with churches. My whole, my whole point of being in the entertainment industry was as a youth pastor, I would see such a negative uh, spirit and a negative um, message released through entertainment industry that I would get bitter and I was kind of like, and, and I'd, I'd be preaching at my kids, you know, but mad at them for listening to 50 Cent and, and the first time Britney Spears was around. I would see it immediately it rise up in my youth ministry. I'm like, ah, they're doing this because they're doing this on TV. And so God finally just checked my heart. He was like, Elijah, shut up, man. You don't do anything to better this. What all you do is complain about what they do. So if you're not providing an answer of some sort of positive thing to this, then you're not given permission. And this is for me that, that you're not given the permission to complain about anything you're not willing to help try fix and try to resolve. And through that, it began like, well, how do I how do I fix the entertainment industry? How do I how do I influence that? And and what I knew to do from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, it wasn't wired for entertainment at the time. Um is I know how to pray. I think the things that aggravate us the most are often indicators of that which we're help called to fix. And and so so how do we how do we eat that elephant? We do it one bite at a time. And so you look at what you can do. And what I can do is I pray. And so at prayer would lead me to the next step, to the next step, to the next step, which eventually led me to open mic uh, nights at the Looney Bin Comedy Club in Oklahoma City and then merging and then winning Oklahoma's Top Comic in 2007 and then then getting a comedy special, uh, presents special and all the stuff that God would favor me with both God and man, but I had to work on my skill and my craft. But overall that time, there was this underlying thing of uh, I'm secretly abusing alcohol i'm secretly doing this thing anytime something's a secret anytime it's shady and we don't have to we don't have to pray about it we don't have to fast about it we just got to know something's not pure here i'm curious a couple things one is that so you went from ministry into the entertainment field so was that easier for you to justify your addiction or to justify, I mean, because in the entertainment industry, I mean, alcohol is a pretty standard procedure. I mean, that's not, you know, that's not even considered, you know, whenever you're in ministry, 
you know, there there comes a point like, hey, you're drinking a little bit too much, or you're, you know, you've got you've got to keep it more secret. But in the entertainment industry, it's pretty accepted. Was that your experience, or, or what? Or when did it? When did you start realizing, oh, this, you know what, this, there's a problem here. So it's it it, it was acceptable in the entertainment industry for a norm uh, quotation marks here drinker, someone who is controlling their drinking. First time you get up on stage and you got 15 minutes to fill and you're slurring the whole time and people have paid 15 bucks a pop to, to and, and gotten babysitters and, and they're they're in on it, you know, they're in the night for $70 and then you get up on stage and slur. The comedy club owner is not impressed with you. They're not tolerant of you. They're, I would say that I had more um, correction in, in the unchurched world than I did in the church world, and it could be because I I felt looser because that mindset uh, that that you just you just spoke on that that kind of like hey I'm in a club I'm actually up here telling them about the drink specials you know of course I can drink in here where they're expecting you we hired you for a job if you can't do that job you're not going to get hired anymore and so I I I kind of like I would abuse it at first and then so I was more secretive of it. I was more controlled in my when I would do it inside the church world um, because I didn't want them to smell it on my breath. I didn't want them to. And no matter what, let me just say this. If you're out there doing that, people know already. They know. Um, anyone who's ever struggled with an issue knows what secrecy looks like. They know what backpedaling looks like. They know what, uh, what all this stuff. They know what the extra mints and the Listerine and all that stuff. They already know. Yeah. And so you're, you're, you may be lying to yourself. But, and so I, I would do that. And so I would say it was a little more controlled in the, in the outcome, in the manifestation, the outward appearance of it, if you would catch me at a church service or something like that. But yeah, I, I um, and, and also I was so convicted whenever I started doing open mics, um, because what I realized is that for 15 years up to that point, I had been preaching the most important message in the universe, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, when I got into comedy, I realized that these guys were getting up for three to five minutes and they were only looking for a laugh and they were taking their presentation far more serious than I'd ever seen almost any of my pastor friends take the presentation of the gospel. Wow. And I, it convicted me and it made me feel like, you know what, I'm going to tighten up the screws because I'm still going into churches and I want the amount of excellence that these guys are going for, I want that to show in my presentation when it's for the kingdom of heaven, not just for a laugh. So when did you meet your your wife and when did you have kids? Was that while you were in the ministry or was that after you got into the entertainment industry? Yeah, no, actually, um, we met in high school. So in my 11th grade year is when when her and I started dating took she went to college and then i was working the radio industry during that time and so um it was in my second year of actually serving christ so i guess i was 22 that we started dating again and then ended up marrying and so she was along for the journey until um 2010 okay. and um yeah yeah i I, th I think it was around the same time there but um yeah yeah so how yeah, did so that, that how many kids kind of, i'm sorry how many kids. kids did you have during that so while you were a youth pastor did you have uh is that where you had all three of your kids or or not yeah uh, two of them two of them so we we had uh, my young my oldest daughter and then uh two miscarriages in between my oldest daughter and my my son. And so seven years later, there was my son, Evan. And then two years later, a year and a half later, was my youngest lady. 
So you were in the entertainment business when you got divorced then, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So would you say that, you know, whenever you would consider your, yourself having an alcohol problem and, and may, you know, again, I'm, I'm asking you this question because I, I, I didn't perceive it. So, so you were at some point you realized that you were being excessive in your alcohol use, you were keeping it a secret or whatever. And so your kids are around. Did you, do you think that your kids recognize that dad's got a problem with alcohol or did you keep that a secret from them pretty good? Oh yeah. No, I, when, when it came to the kids, I mean, I, though I would try to, I was pretty open about, you know, what, 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 what was going on. Um, and certainly, certainly I would term it as an addiction. Now I know I introduced it as a, a as an issue as a, because it's, it began with an abusive relationship with alcohol. Um, it began as a, this isn't healthy um, to, to the point where I am, strongly convinced that it is an addiction if I allow myself to operate in it. And, um, and the difference is that is there's a, um, there's an allergy that I have toward it. And the allergy shows up in the way of, um, if it, I, I love Mexican food. Okay. I love it. I mean, I can't get enough Mexican food, but I have never um, eaten so much Mexican food that I would make myself throw up pardon my analogy, but, but I would make myself sick and throw up. So that way I could eat more Mexican food. Now I have done that with alcohol. Mm -hmm. I have drank so much that I've gotten so sick that I have just wanted to vomit. Not so I could get away from alcohol, but so I could drink more alcohol. And that allergy is very unique to addicts, you know, to someone who, who has that within them. It's a very, it's a, it's a very specific thing. Um, you know, you, I'm someone who will leave uh, medication or pain pills. I'll leave them in the bottle. I got no, all roads of misbehavior lead to alcohol. For me. Mm-hmm. And so I know that is the area where the enemy would have the most control over my life and the biggest weapon in my life if I allowed him to. And the, the way I don't allow him to is I, I work an active program uh, of, of a, a daily living program where I'm accountable to other people. I'm accountable to other and, and I, I have a daily inventory. And so it, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. And you're speaking some recovery language now. So, you know, you call it an allergy, but it, it's an addiction. And, you know, some people believe that it's a learned addiction. Some people believe that, you know, it's a genetic or it's in your, in it's just who you are. And that's okay. It doesn't matter to me which one you believe. But my question is, is when did it become such a problem that you realize, you know, we always say, so in, in our, in Celebrate Recovery that I attend, uh, principle one, which is step one of AA is that realize that I am not God. I admit that I am powerless to control my addiction or my tendency to do the wrong thing and that my life is unmanageable. When did Elijah, when did you realize that, man, you just can't, you can't manage this. This is a problem that you need help. When, when did that happen? Yeah. So I would dip my toes um, over the years into different recovery rooms um, and that's that's kind of the term we use for different alcohol, you know, AA rooms, those kind of that, that kind of. Thing. And so so I dip my toes into there knowing I'd gone too far the weekend before. I have horrible feeling, the shakes, the sweats, all the stuff. I don't want to live like this anymore. It was making itself very clear to me, no matter how much I would try to avoid it. So I was I was doing that for a few years and I would take 
I would, I would, I would scratch together, you know, seasons of time, six months, a year here, that kind of thing. That, that would be significant in, in a uh, quote unquote normal drinker's life, a social drinker's life. They'd be like, oh man, you hadn't drank in a year. You should be proud of yourself. But always in the back of my mind, I was planning my escape. You know, I, I, I was thinking, well, maybe since I haven't drank in a year, I've proven to myself that I can control my drinking and all the, all this, all the shenanigans that, that I personally tell myself if I allow myself to, to, to tell myself lies. And so, so in 2015, um, I was, uh, I was on the road and, um, and I was, I was doing, I was doing pretty well, but I was having this heart issue. I was having this, this, um, something didn't feel quite right on the inside of me. I couldn't figure out what it was. And so I told my kids, Hey, listen, if I'm still having this feeling shortness of breath, um, then I'm going to take myself after church to the ER and I'm just going to, I'm going to have them look at me because type one diabetic since I was four years old. So I need to, I need to watch out for these kind of things. I get there every report that they do an EKG and they're like, yeah, it's a little off, but uh, we wouldn't say you're too young. You look like you're in shape. You, you know, uh, I eat right. I eat healthy, healthy and all this stuff. And they said, it's probably nothing, but let's just keep you over for another test. The next test would indicate mm, something's not quite right here. And that was the week of Thanksgiving. And they ended up keeping me in the hospital because by the time they uh, did, did an angioplasty on me where they run a camera up through your arteries, um, they realized, uh-oh, you need to have heart surgery. And, and it ended up being um, just the result of type one diabetes on my body for at that time, over 40 years, um, that my arteries were just starting, my veins were just starting to close in. And so they needed to do a quadruple bypass on me. And, um, and it was at that point that, uh, that I had to sign a bunch of papers over, you know, before, because if it goes wrong, you're not coming back. And they told me later on that this one, I had a 20% chance of making it through. So it was a pretty bad circumstance. And so they were trying to get me to sign the papers. And so I, I signed, if something happens, you know, my, then my parents would get the custody of my kids, all this stuff that causes you, whether you like it or not, it causes you to really take inventory of where you really are, not where you perceive yourself to become, but where you really actually are. And, um, and as a result of that, when I came back to, when I woke back up, because I knew I was either gonna wake up in God's presence or in the presence of a bunch of uh, people, you know? And so when I woke back up, I just determined within myself, that's it, man. Tighten up the screws. You don't, you can't, you can't, you can't expedite. There's no reason for you to be expediting the process in getting to the finish line. You know, I mean, the common denominator with all of us, is, you know, it, none of us are getting out of this thing alive. <laughs> so, so, so we have a, we have a choice to make of how we are going to be while we are here. And, and I just, I got tired of, you know, I got tired of it. And, and, um, and so that was really the, that was really the thing. It wasn't, it once again, it wasn't a crash and burn. I've lost everything. It is, are you willing to give everything away that you've worked so hard to raise these kids? You've worked ho so hard to earn credibility towards all this stuff, you know, and is it really a good reflection of your relationship with God? You know, I had to ask, I had to be honest with myself. So do you mind giving out how long you've been sober or not? Yeah, yeah that, that was December 1st, 2015. Oh, wow. That's amazing. 
So you mentioned being sober for eight years, so since 2015. So uh, were there any, was there any scripture, any uh, Bible verses or anything like that that meant a lot to you during that time period when you were getting sober or whenever you, you know, in recovery? Is there anything that's, that stood out to you, any verses, any scripture? Yeah, Romans 12, too, is, is pretty much my, I mean, it is my go-to. Uh, what it states is, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that way you can prove what is the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. And so if I'm still this year thinking exactly in every area like I was this time last year, then I have not transformed by the renewing of my mind. I haven't stretched. I haven't grown. I haven't gone through the growing pains of embracing new mindsets that will cause me to be a bigger person here on this earth. And so that's that's really what I lean on. If I want to see God's good, acceptable, and perfect will play out in my life, I have to not conform, and I have to transform by the way that I change my thinking. So last question. So if someone is listening and they can relate to your story, maybe they have uh, were raised, they've got good relationship with their parents and their siblings, and maybe they don't really have any reason for some of the decisions that they've made. Maybe they've recognized that there's uh, some issues in their life, uh, and it could be drugs, alcohol, it could be pornography, it could be uh, just, uh, it could be anger, it could be all kinds of things, but maybe they recognize something. So what message would you give to that person that says, I, I really relate to Elijah's story um, where where would you advise them to go? What would you advise them to do? Yeah, I would say this. Stop comparing your story, and this I'm talking to, to the, the person listening. Stop comparing your story to the worst story of somebody else's. It would be a ridiculous thing to, to think that we have to have these horrible, horrible backgrounds in order to pursue change that we feel like is needed. I'm here to tell you, you can be working in ministry, and, and, and need change. You you can you can be a good parent and still on the inside feel like you need change in an area. You can be doing all these other things, but it's the inward witness of the Holy Spirit that is leading you, guiding you, and directing you toward a betterment in an area of your life. And you don't have to apologize and you don't have to explain that away to anyone. You can just pursue betterment in that area. Amen. Well, let me ask you this um, as we close up here. What is God doing in your life? What's going on in Elijah's life right now? And uh, feel free. I know you've got a podcast if you'd like to uh, tell us a little bit about that. But what's going on in your world right now? I just released a book two weeks ago. Um, it's out and it's called Detours Don't Change Destinations. Um, if you if you guys want to look that up and, and pull that up, that, that'd be great. Um, and and so, so there's that. My podcast is called Laugh Anyway, and I appreciate you having me on. Elijah, thanks so much for sharing your story with us. Hey, if you are listening today and you feel empty inside, even though you have everything you ever wanted, that emptiness is a God-shaped void that can only be filled by Jesus Christ. Maybe you can relate to Elijah's story and you have some secrets that have proven to be destructive in your life. God can heal your life and bring positive change to your life. However, if nothing changes, nothing changes. See you next time.